today, conditional um, election as we head through the tulip, kind of one at a time, uh, maybe many weeks at a time as by the time we get done with them all. But uh, I'd like to ask you to turn to Romans 3 um, just as a reminder of total depravity. Um, want to introduce this. Papa is going to uh, talk to us about unconditional election, and then Greg is going to help us with this idea of being foreknown. What does it mean to be um, foreknown? But before we pray, uh, Mary Kate Linder has an exciting week this week that we want to pray for her as she's at golf camp with FCA. Um, really, really great opportunity for her this week. And then the Hakamas, you may know this, are leaving tomorrow, um, Lord willing, for Peru. Uh, Going to be there about a week, and they have a great, great opportunity with um, pastors that are going to come kind of from all over the region there, and they'll get a minister to pastors and their families. I think Bruce said maybe about 110 people total that will be coming for a little pastor retreat, and they get to lead that. So that's a, a pretty good opportunity. Papa, would you pray for us? for both of those, and we are really happy to have you uh, on board with us here today, Papa. Thank you, Jerry. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, uh, long before Adam's sin, you had already decreed and determined salvation for sinners. In eternity past, the Father, you chose a people in Christ who would uh, be saved. Before even time began, you elected many from among mankind whom you purposed to save from his wrath. This selection was not based on any foreseen faith or knowledge of those whom you chose, nor was it prompted by some goodness or some work or some uh, performance on their part. But according to your infinite love and inscrutable wisdom, according to the counsel of your wills. I, Father, I... I admit when, when I say that or pray that, I don't understand all that, how you could do that, but you're God and, and, and we're not. So as we probe the depths of Scripture, the depths of this doctrine of uh, predestination, election, and so on, I pray that your Spirit guide us and lead us today. And, and for those who are in ministry in this church, I pray your special blessing. Uh, on those ministries today. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm, amen. Um, really quickly, and this is from a couple weeks ago, it's a good thing that unconditional election doesn't mean that God saw down the corridors of time and said, you know what, I'm going to wait and see who's really going to be good or spiffy enough, and then I'm going to choose them. Right, and it's a good thing for that because let's be reminded, this is not, not necessarily a fun reminder, but a good one. Chapter 3 in Romans, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Sproul says we need to go back to this often because all of the rest of the letters of Tulip kind of fall uh, like Donimo's uh, with this thought of our depravity. Look at Romans 8 yet, and then um, Pop will introduce a little bit more about this being foreknown. Chapter 8, verse 7 and 8. Devastating here, uh, our condition. 
apart from our Savior. And you can probably go back in your life to say, wow, this is who I used to be. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hostility toward God, they do not submit. It cannot submit, worse yet, and they can't please God. On this idea, Papa, now on unconditional election, introduce it for us and maybe give us an idea about foreknown before Greg kind of takes us into the depths here. Okay, uh, I, uh, and you guys keep me straight. Uh, back to your, your verses, uh, Jerry, the, for the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It was those verses that convicted me seems like an eternity past, but sometimes it seems like yesterday that I was the man. I didn't understand how depravity worked until I read those verses. And, and the mind, and, and, and we all have minds, if we focus and set our minds on the flesh, that's what we reap, flesh. But set on the spirit, we reap righteousness and godliness. So um, uh, that's a good way to start, Jerry. Um, Foreknowledge. Um, Lawson says that, just like you read, Jerry, uh, that God looks down the corridors of time and he sees nothing but depravity. He sees, now, I'm not going to sit here in this chair and try to acquaint you with what God sees and doesn't see. That's certainly beyond my pay grade. But uh, Ephesians says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, all of us. Romans 3, as Jerry read, there's no one righteous, no, not one. So uh, there's nothing but depravity. Uh, Lawson also said God never learns anything by looking in the future. I mean, he's omnipotent, omniscient. And, and so he has his counsel of will from, from, from the beginning. And, and that counsel looked ahead in the, in the uh, let's just go back to Romans 8, Romans 8, 28 through 30. Uh, and, and Piper posits this question, is election, election based on foreknown faith or is faith on the effect of election? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. Notice that he foreknew and he worked in predestination to be, to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? So there's a, a foreknowledge, uh, which is knowing are you going to talk about Yeah, Greg, what oh, is yeah, that even? Good thing it wasn't conditional election, though, is what Papa's saying. Unconditional, that's right. It's not based on anything that, and, and our Armenian friends would say, you know, God, God looks down through the annals of time, and, you know, he's going to, he's, he's, it's a corporate election. Uh, they're going to select a group of people, uh, and then it's up to the people to make a decision for Christ one way or the other. And, and, and that's just not what Scripture seems to indicate. That's not what Scripture seems to tell us. Uh, and so um, 
this is this is a doctrine that was not plucked uh, out of Scripture. This is a block uh, a doctrine that was based on Scripture. That the tulip, I mean, the acronym, simply to respond to the remonstrance. They had, they disagreed with the reform position, and and so the reform position came up with. Uh, actually, I have it down here when when you guys were teaching, because uh, I mean, Mark took a picture of it. The uh, it's this is the five articles of remonstrance. Conditional predestination based on foreknowledge. So God looked down through the annals of time. He knew that Greg was going to be a good boy, and so he, he saved him. Um, number two, the limited atonement. They have universal, unlimited atonement. Anyone can be saved. The whole world, the gospel is offered to uh, unlimited atonement to anyone. Uh, total depravity. They... Uh, also agree on total depravity, but they have another element called prevenient grace. Believe, they believe that God has ramped up this grace, and we, we both sides use grace, but their prevenient grace is a universal grace that's available to all mankind. And that grace enables them to make a conscious decision to choose Christ. Um, grace is necessary, but resistible. That's what the Armenian camp would say. And I would say it's not resistible. The hounds of heaven will plague you if you're elect and, and, and till, you, till that day when he calls you home. And, and that's just, that's such a foundational truth that it's hard to, to even deny. And then the possibility of falling away, their last point, uh, the perseverance of the saints, they would disagree with us that, um, that we could fall away, that we will fall away given the opportunity. And I won't, I won't be quiet for a minute, but Piper made a big, I followed him on his unlim, uh, unconditional election, and he made a passionate plea. He said, there's no one, if you think you're beyond God's grace, uh, he's, he, he used examples in the counseling room. People would come in with persistent sin. Also, his own son, Abraham, who stepped away four years. And Piper met with him weekly, prayed for him, and he came back to the fold eventually. Uh, my understanding that he has. And he departed again. Oh, did he? Oh, oh yeah. he's, 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 he's on well, social he's, media doing everything okay, he can. He's to, departed again. Well, forgive me. Unfortunately. But uh, that's sort of the... Our, uh, by our, I mean the reform or the Calvinist response to the remonstrance, and, and uh, Greg's going to talk about this foreknowledge thing. Yeah, so back in Romans chapter 8, we're going to start here briefly, and then we're going to do kind of a, a walking tour through some biblical texts, Old Testament, New Testament, um, understanding, you know, how does the Bible use this word to know? Well, we've talked about this before, but hopefully this will be even better, but again, Verse 29, Romans chapter 8, says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The most common word we focus on is predestined there. Well, you know, we, like, depending on your church background, what you're used to, I mean, to even say the word predestination is almost like a four-letter word that you're not supposed to say. Like, that's taboo. It's off limits. You don't say that word 
Um, and one of the most amazing things is it's actually in the Bible, but it's actually not the most controversial, the most important word here. Like, I think that's the thing that continually gets me. You can take predestination as kind of a, a big picture of God's, you know, plan for salvation. But in this particular passage, predestination is what God is doing for those who he knows are going to be saved, like for, for believers. Okay. And so predestination is God says, look, um, this is what I'm going to do to my people. I'm going to make sure they're conformed to Jesus. The word before that is the word foreknow. That's actually the most important word right here. Okay. Because you're going to become like Jesus if God foreknows you. All right. That's the important word. If, if God doesn't, if you're not foreknown of God, then you're not going to be conformed to Jesus. Okay. That's the logic of the text that Paul is giving us in verse 29. So foreknow is the beginning uh, of this whole golden chain that we're going to come back come back to. So again, we all know the word foreknow, foreknowledge, you know, in the most basic sense is to know ahead of time. But the question is, what does it mean to know? What does that word mean to know? Okay, that's what we need to, to understand. That's what we need to, to see what scripture actually says, because we tend to, in our culture and just the way we're wired, think, oh, I have information about something. I know, I know that. I, under, I, you know, I, I understand how that works. I know that. I get it. Um, and that is not how this word actually functions in Scripture. So I want to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. Okay, Genesis chapter 4. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of a sword drill uh, here today and see the roots of this word know. So in, in the Greek language, the word to know is gnosko. Um, in the Hebrew, it's yada. Okay, um, Fred and I were, were joking. You know, somebody's bothering. I know, I know. You hear yada yada yada. I know, I know, I know. It's what husbands never should say to their wives. Um, I don't know if that's where it came from, but it's, it seems plausible. But the word to know in Hebrew is um, yada, and it can have it can have a number of of nuances, and depending on the context in which it's used. But when it comes to um, husbands and wives and God's relationship to his people, there's only one way we can understand this, okay? And context is going to determine that. So Genesis chapter 4, look at verse 1, all right? So we know um, the, the fall has happened. Adam and Eve have been driven out of the Garden of Eden. There's a cherubim there, a flaming sword, you know, guarding the way to the tree of life. They can't get back into Eden. They're, they're barred from it. They're banned from it. Um, and then we get chapter 4, verse 1. This is after they've left the garden. It doesn't say exactly when, but just that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That word knew there, if you have the ESV, um, is the word yada, to know. And so that's when we have to start asking, okay, what, what does Moses mean by this word, Adam knew Eve? Does that mean he just knew about her? So the result of Adam knowing about his wife was that she got pregnant. I mean, we'd say there's no way. Like, like it's got to mean more than that because conception is the result of this knowing, right? I mean, that's clear from the text. And so what we need to see here um, is that the word new means to, to enter into the most intimate, close relationship that you can have with someone. And in context of marriage, um, it refers to the relationship between a husband and wife, 
Okay, we don't say Adam knew about Eve and she became pregnant, or Adam understood Eve and she became pregnant, or he recognized her. No, it's got to mean more than that based on the context and how it's used. Okay, so Adam knew Eve, his wife, she conceived. Knowing involves more than just knowing about, okay? Flip to Genesis, stay in Genesis 4. You might have to flip your page like I am to Genesis 4.25, okay? Again, we're just going to see in the context of the marital relationship here what this word means. Verse 25, it says, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. And so again, it's already clear context has to determine what this word know means. Okay, we, we have to be oh so careful about taking our, our common usage of a word and then reading that back into the Bible as though they're using it the exact same way we do today. Okay, um, that is not how this word is used in the Old Testament, the word yada for no. All right, so Adam knew his wife, children come as a result of that. So it's, it's this intimate, close like he's choosing her, he's not choosing anyone else. He's 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 relating to her, getting to you know, getting involved with her in a way that he's not going to get involved with anyone else. That's one of the the the, the joys and the benefits of of marriage. And so, for Adam to know his wife means he's not going to know any other woman this way. No other woman is going to be known to Adam the way Eve is. Comments on this, guys, before we move on to Amos. Well, it just back to the Armenian position that's a corporate, this is, this is just totally opposite from yeah. the Word of God, what it says. It is. It is, and of course, we use the context of, of, of marriage, but there are other examples which we'll give you of knowing, and, and clearly it's a relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jerry, anything for no, move on? All right. Amos. Find Amos. He's right after Joel, and I'm not going to help you more than that. I don't have the list memorized in my head. Some of you, yeah, there's Amos and then there's Joel. Um, Or Joel and then Amos, I should say. Amos chapter 3. So remember what we said. This word yada in the Old Testament refers to um, a husband knows his wife. um, And it's obviously a lot more than just a mental cognition that she's there or he has right information about her. It's, It's a relational knowing. It's an intimate knowing. Um, uh, and in the case of marriage, it's a physical knowledge as well. But like we said, this also refers to God's relationship to his people. Now, obviously, we don't need to think physically, like sexually in this, but God wants us to understand that when he knows his people, it, it is a relational knowing. Like he's entering into a relationship, he's, he's, he's preferring them, choosing them, loving them. Like he's not going to love anyone else, know anyone else, choose anyone else, Okay. So again, it's more than just this mere cognition of information about someone. Look at Amos chapter 3. Look at verse 2. This is God speaking to Israel. He says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. And obviously he's going to punish them for their sin in this. But think about the significance of him saying that. It's not like, I didn't know anything about these other nations. I only knew this about you. Like, that doesn't make any sense in the context at all. Like, you, you cannot argue that way based on what the Scripture is saying. God, I mean, God, we know, knows everything in terms of information. There's nothing that He doesn't know. 
And so to say he didn't have any information about the other families of the earth, but he knew about Israel, that doesn't make any sense based on what's being argued here. No, it's, it's the same kind of no applied spiritually to God's relationship with his people here. He says, you're the only one I've known of all the families of the earth, the only one I've chosen, the only one I've loved, the one I've set my affection on, the one I'm going to fight for, the one I'm going to dwell with, the one who's going to have my law and my, my covenant and my temple. Like God didn't give that to anyone else and no other nation had that in the world except Israel. And so knowing here again is far stronger than just, well, God knew about Israel more than he knew about these other nations. Mm -hmm. um, any comments on that guys before yeah, we move fan on? Fantastic. That didn't, wouldn't make any other sense. No, it doesn't. Any other way. Well, you know, and, and, and how he worked with Israel from, from, from the call of Abraham all the way through the Exodus and, and the entrance into the Promised Land and, and then the Babylonian captivity and the new Exodus that we've just been studying about in Ezra. And just, he, he, he's working with, he knows, he has a relationship. They're his bride. And ultimately, we're the church, mm -hmm. the result of, of all that. So, Okay, now let's go to the New Testament, to the book of Matthew. All right. Remember, Old Testament, the word is yada. Um, New Testament, it's gnosko. Uh, Matthew chapter one, all the way back at the beginning. We're very familiar with this story. Obviously, the, the virgin conception of, of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, as we're going to see. Joseph, you know, she's pregnant. He obviously knows he's not the dad. He's going to divorce her quietly. He doesn't want to you know, make a big deal about it. He's an honorable, just man, it says. But look at what happens in verse 24 as Joseph is going to contemplate, we know, you know, putting Mary away. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. The angel said, take her, Joseph, take her uh, as your wife. But look at verse 25. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So again, here, it's not that Joseph didn't know about Mary or he refused to know about her until Jesus was born. It's like that, again, that doesn't make any sense with the context of what's being said here. The, the knowing is the same kind of knowing that we read about in Genesis 4 between Adam and Eve. Translated over to the New Testament with the word gnosko, um, Joseph did not have marital relationships with Mary until after Jesus was born. He, he restrained himself. He, he honored her in that way. Um, now, look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. Again, I hope it's starting to get clear the case we're trying to make here. As it's been said, this is the end of the, the greatest sermon ever preached, preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached, Jesus. End of the Sermon on the Mount. We're very familiar with this. We just covered this in church not too many months ago. Um, and I know Mark spent a whole sermon on this, and so I encourage you, go back and listen to that if you want to dive more in depth um, on this. But Matthew chapter 7, look at verses 21 through 23. This is amazing here in a sobering way what Jesus actually says to, um, to a certain group of people. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? 
Which means, by the way, you can do all kinds of stuff in the church and for the church and in the name of Jesus. You can go on mission trips. You can go soul winning. You can even teach Bible studies. And that does not mean you're saved. It does not mean it at all. Um, Because, I mean, we would look at people like this and say, wow, they're prophesying in the name of Jesus. They're casting out demons. They're doing miracles. And what does Jesus say at the end? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, think about this. If Jesus were saying, I never knew about you, how can he condemn them from his presence? He doesn't know anything. How can he say they did anything wrong? Again, and I'm saying that because I want us to feel the weight of this word, the weight of this word, know here. It says, I never knew you meaning I didn't have that relationship with you. I wasn't close to you. You weren't really my people with my presence working in you. And if that is the case, what does he say? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Separation from Jesus is the result of not being known by him. Yes, we need to seek to know him, but the bigger question is, does he know us? Mm-hmm. Does he know us? Has he brought us into this special relationship, this exclusive relationship that not everyone has? Any thoughts on that before we go to John? The Greek language is real specific here uh, in the case of Gnosko, frequently indicates a, a relationship between the person knowing and the object known. In this respect, what is known is of value or importance to the one who knows and hence the establishment of the relationship. And this is particularly of God's relationship with his uh, sheep. I do find it interesting, yeah, it's good, that Jesus didn't say, you never knew me. He says, I never knew you. That's the, the, and that's the only way that we know him is when he knows us, the foreknown, the predestined, the called, the justified, and then we'll be glorified. John 10. Yeah, John chapter 10. Flip there in your Bibles, if you will, please. Two different um, sections in John 10 we're going to look at here. First is verses 13 through 15. And again, keep in mind, when we we hear God knowing His people, again, keep, keep in the background loving, choosing, preferring, um, exclusively, um, to the, to the exclusion of others. John chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. Fred, will you read that for us? Uh, 13. He flees, 10, 13? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he through flees 15. because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. Yeah, I mean, again, this, this knowing here is more than just having information about. It's not like Jesus, you know, yeah, I, I know all about my sheep. I know, you know, what color, I mean, he does know all about us. But is that what he's saying here? I mean, again, if Jesus is the son of God and he's God, then he knows everything. So what's the point in saying that in a section like this? He's making a contrast. He's got those who belong to him. And he says, I know my own. And here's the flip of it, Jerry, like you were saying, his own know him. Like if you've been known by God, you will know him. 
It's impossible for God to choose you, love you, save you, work in you, put his spirit in you, and you not to know him. It's impossible. Like that's not even an option. Uh, there's, there's no like true closet Christian, if you will. Oh, I'm saved and elect, but I'll never know about it. Mm -hmm. um, no, that's just not how this works. If he knows you, you will come to know him. It's, it's, the, it's like Paul Washer used the, uh, the illustration, and I still can't get past this. It's like someone walks out, um, like say, say they, they had a meeting they had to come into, um, and they, they walk in like 20 minutes late, and you know, their, their, their clothes are all you know, ripped up and shredded. They've got some bruises. Their hair is messed up. They're bleeding from a few places, and they're like, you know, I'm sorry I'm late. I, I, um, I, I was on my bike and I got hit on the interstate by a tractor trailer going about 80 miles an hour. Um, so sorry I'm late. And, and the point of that illustration, we'd be like, wait a minute, something's not adding up here. You don't get hit by a tractor trailer going 80 miles an hour and walk into your meeting after that. You're done. You're absolutely done. If you encounter a tractor trailer like that on a bicycle, there's no more of you. Like, you're going to leave that completely changed forever, okay? And so the point of that illustration is, like, to say that I've encountered the God of the universe whose who son lived, died, rose again, conquering death, um, and I say I've not been changed by that encounter, then it's not Jesus I've encountered. Let's, let's just be honest. It's, it's, it's a lie. It's a fabrication. It's a falsity. We cannot be known by God, him choosing us, loving us, saving us, entering into that relationship and not be changed so that we start to know him. Um, it's just going to happen. Look um, at Go ahead. Well, well, that verse 15, I love this. Um, and it kind of hit me in a new way just now. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. And then how just incredible is this? just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. So he relates that. They knew each other before the beginning of time, and that's how he knows us, and that's how we know him. And we'll get to more than that in, uh, in a month with the irresistible grace. As, grace. as Greg's explaining, it's irresistible. Once he knows us, when he sets his sights on us, we will know him. That is an exciting 14 and 15 together are, are, that's just unfathomable that we know him in the way he knows the Father and the Father knows him. Yeah. Fred, you look like you had something to say. I have another verse in John 10 uh, uh, that embellishes on the sheep um, story. Um, Jesus is with the Jews, the Pharisees. Uh, the, John 10, 24 through 27, the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not my, of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's, that's pretty direct. Absolutely is direct. And notice there, verse 26, that is an amazing statement. Because the way we want to think is, you're not among my sheep because you don't believe. Mm -hmm. That's the way we're wired to think about this. You become the sheep when you believe. But Jesus says, he completely flips that and says, you aren't believing. You don't have faith. Why? Because you're not among my sheep. And so I think this ties in so clearly to the doctrine of unconditional election 
God has chosen those who will be his. And those who will be his will believe through the preaching of the gospel by the work of the spirit at the right time. This doesn't, just because he, again, we'll get with it. You can't talk about one without talking about the others. Um, we'll get to the, to the grace and the drawing and all of that. Um, but you, you, you can't have one without the other. Um, if God knows you, that means he's chosen you. He loves you and he will save you. And again, when it comes to evangelism, this in some way, this should spur us on to more zeal while taking a burden off of us that we should never bear. Ultimately, you and I can't save anyone. We can't make someone believe. We can offer every argument, every reason. We can undercut every objection. But unless and until God opens their eyes to the truth and opens their heart to, to, to embrace Christ, to love him, there is no way they're going to believe. And so we can and we should reason, persuade, plead with people to believe in Jesus. Uh, Mark talked about that more last week about, you know, Spurgeon's quote, you know, let them, if they're going to go to hell, make them trip over you getting there because you're going to do everything you can basically to keep them from going. But ultimately, it's not up to you and me. If you and I have faithfully communicated who God is, how bad sin is, what Jesus has done, and how we need to respond, and how or how they need to respond, and they have not responded, that burden is not on you. You didn't fail in evangelism. Like we are so wired to think in the pragmatic terms that unless someone actually believed, we weren't successful, and that is just not true. People will believe because they are elect, and if they're elect, God's going to draw them at just the right time. We don't know when that is. We don't know who the elect are, and that's why we have to zealously, repeatedly preach the gospel. But based on this, why, why is it at the end of the day that people don't believe? It's because they're not his sheep. Mm -hmm. Another way of saying, I didn't know you. Mm -hmm. I haven't known you. I haven't loved you. I haven't chosen you. Can we go one more place before Ephesians 1? That's yeah. well said. And you might remember that Acts 13, 48 is in that same, that same light. Once we're appointed as we believe, we don't be, uh, we believe because we're appointed. That's the, the order there. Jeremiah 1, 5. Um, Mark, I love this, on vacation reminds us to go to Jeremiah 1, 5 via the text. I love it. Mark is not letting, letting us lose here without um, looking at that. And this is, oh, this is such great proof here. Before I formed you, he's talking about Jeremiah here, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Again, that same word. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And so look what's going on here. Um, before he was formed in the womb, he knew him. Okay, the foreknown there. And then that goes with the idea of being consecrated and appointed. See all of those words related there? And so in Jeremiah 1, 5, it's not at all the idea that Jeremiah is born and God says, whoa, that one guy right there, I bet he's going to be something. I'm going to use him. No, this is all the way back, consecrated, appointed, known. Papa or Greg on that one, isn't that a fantastic? Oh, it is. And, and, and you know, uh, he... I love Isaiah 6 when he's actually called, uh, not, I, I, that's a different uh, chapter, but uh, Jeremiah in particular, you know, was, boy, what a, what, a, what a difficult life that guy had. 
I mean, he was, he was called to, to preach the gospel to a very difficult people at a very difficult time and and they persecuted him they uh, imprisoned him they tortured him and he pressed on he persevered in that uh, call that god gave him before he was even formed in the womb greg on jeremiah one just before i formed you in the womb i knew you not again, not know about. It's not like God had to say, I wonder what Jeremiah is going to be when he grows up. Let me look. No, I mean, it was his knowing, this choosing that set Jeremiah's course, not the other way around. Um, and again, that, that's just, that is just how this functions in the Bible. And I hope that's becoming clear um, no matter where we look. Uh, let's look at Acts chapter 2. Again, a very familiar text here. Acts chapter 2, we'll just look at verses 22 through 23. And again, this is all setting up our understanding of foreknowledge, especially in Romans 8, uh, because that tends to be the primary text where this is debated. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 23. All right, Peter's preaching on Pentecost. It's the first Christian sermon, um, you know, preaching to the Jews. And uh, listen to what he says here in verse 22. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So look at the pairing there. That is an amazing pairing of phrases. According to Jesus was crucified, according to what? the definite plan of God and the foreknowledge of God. And so again, the definite plan means God set it out ahead of time. He laid out what he wanted to do. And because God had planned it, he foreknew the crucifixion. Again, did God have to learn about the crucifixion? Like by looking down the corridors of time, like, okay, we got to bring salvation. I've got a plan for this, but how's that going to happen? Let me look. That's not how it works. The whole event of the crucifixion was foreknown by God, meaning he chose it. It was the plan he preferred. It was the plan that was best to him. And therefore, it came about. So again, foreknowledge here cannot mean God just knew about it ahead of time because it's not talking about a decision. It's talking about like a decision for Jesus. It's talking about a whole series of events. Um, that took place. And God foreknew it. He was intimately involved with it. It's what he chose. It's what he preferred. We could even say it's what he loved because he knew it would showcase his glory in a way that nothing else would as he saved sinners. We go to Ephesians 1, because we have five minutes. It takes 50, (laughs) but we're going to get it in five. Greg's going to get it in five, I should say, right? You say that. Ephesians 1. Could you explain, first of all, how that's one long sentence, isn't it? From 3 to 14? Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> I love that. Doesn't he get carried away and just keep writing and writing? You ought to say it in the Greek. All the letters are jumbled up. Are they really? Yeah. There's no uh, indentation or punctuation. I love that. It's Paul like, might have spoken bad English, but he spoke great Greek. Yeah, yeah. Like what he does here, we'd say, oh, that's a really bad run-on sentence. Paul doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> no, in the Greek language, to be able to string together that long of a sentence is actually a very genius thing. Like that's acceptable. It's good. It's a sign that you understand the language. So Paul, 
you know, he's, he's not making grammar mistakes here. Go ahead, Jerry. No, go ahead. Oh, we're going to, okay. Well, let's read then Ephesians 3 through, Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Because again, there's a, there's a connection I want to make here. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him when before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And we're going to stop there uh, so we don't get distracted by all the other good stuff um, that's here. So again, the, the choosing is, is not just a, a nebulous group of people, but he chose us. How did he choose us? Paul's talking to, about himself, talking about the Ephesian believers. Like God chose us. How did he choose us in Christ? Why did he have to choose us in Christ? Because outside of Christ, we're still in our sins. Outside of Christ, we're still um, under the wrath of God. We're still children of wrath. We're dead in sin. All that he talks about in chapter 2. When did he choose us? Before the foundation of the world. Uh, before he created anything. When it was just God existing by himself, in his plan, he chose a particular people uh, in Christ. So God permitted sin and then set his plan for salvation in Jesus, in motion, um, in his plan. And so he saves sinners and he chooses particular ones. Go back to Romans 9 and talk about that more. With what goal that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then in love, he predestined us. Again, choosing here is, is equivalent to knowing, for, foreknowing as we've seen. And so for God to foreknow you means God chooses you. And again, predestination comes after that. I really don't think predestination should be the controversial word. It's election and foreknowledge. Those should be the, the ones. Um, because if he has chosen you, then you will be predestined to be adopted. You see how that works? He chooses you and then marks you out beforehand to be adopted. Okay? That's how it works. That's predestined to mark out beforehand. Um, again, how? Through Jesus Christ. According to what? According to the purpose of your will that you use when you hear the gospel, so you choose Jesus. That's not what it says, is it? Again, I'm not trying to be snarky. I'm not trying to be overly combative, but I think we have to hear it like that for it to land the way it needs to. He chose us, predestined us to be adopted according to the purpose of his will or the good pleasure of his will. Why are you a child of God today? Because God in his good pleasure chose you to be one. It's not because of anything you did, not because of any worth in you. It's the anti-contemporary gospel that God saves us because we're worthy. Mm -hmm. No, um, God saves the unworthy, um, those who are hostile to him. Again, verse 6, we have to read this. To what? The praise of his glorious grace, completely undeserved, completely unearned in every way. It's great, Papa. It's, it's all God. You know, when I read this, when we read this, it's, it's, we have no contribution. God looked forward in, in, in predestination time and, and saw us and, and are in his, the counsel of his will and chose us in him. Uh, the, the, the opposition, and most of the world, most of the Christian world does not uh, enjoy a reformed position on these things. They don't. They don't see the sovereignty 
and the providence of God and all these actions that we read about in Ephesians. And it's really kind of sad because I don't see my name at all in there except as the beneficiary of his grace. Hmm. That's good. This brings me back I get 15 years probably. Might have been reading Jesus' storybook Bible, the Ben. I don't know. It could have been that. Could have been. Anyway, we came across this idea. And I remember Ben as a three or four-year-old, probably three, just kind of perking up and saying, you mean God knew me like before the beginning of time or a long time ago? And, and he was fascinated by that idea. And even at, you know, at, a, little, at a young age, he did, it, it made him feel so good, I think, feel so special that, wait a second, God chose me way back then? And, uh, and I think that's the way it ought to be for us, uh, completely apart from us. And, he, and uh, Greg, I like the way you um, emphasize there, according to the purpose of his will. So why did he do it? He did it because that's what he willed to do. And maybe that's not always intellectually satisfying, Maybe that doesn't answer all our questions. I, it doesn't answer all my questions for sure, but it's what we know, and it's all we need to know. Otherwise, he would have given us some more um, to know on this. So, Greg, could you pray um, that we would continue to... Well, maybe just one more quick thing. How do we... How should this... How should we respond this week uh, to this? What's the application of such glorious truth? Humility is the first word that comes to my mind. Um, I mean, it should utterly humble us to know that our salvation depends not in even a little bit on us. It does not depend on us um, in any way. Even, you know, our, our faith, well, like, we, the more we know, the more we trust, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, so when is our faith enough? Um, it's like it's, it, it's never enough because we're always going to be learning and growing. And so, again, we don't look within to, to find our assurance. We, we look to what God says about us. Um, and that, this is where it means, it says, listen, you don't have to have everything figured out. Just believe in Jesus. The Bible never says, ask if you're elect. You know, you feel like you're elect or, or something. It's like, no. Do you recognize that God is holy and you're a sinner and that you need to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus who is the only answer for your sin? Like, that's where this meets us. And it's like, Find comfort in knowing that if you have believed in Jesus, if you're trusting in Him right now, it's because God ultimately chose you first. Um, And your faith rests not in your faith, but in God who chose you and in the perfect work of Jesus. Should we pray? Let's, let's, Let's pray and finish on that note. And next week we'll come back, finish up this talk about foreknowledge, um, and then start getting into some objections that people might have. So let's pray. Father... You are so gracious, so good. Um, it's, it's so humbling to, to think about the fact that we did not contribute to our salvation in any way, uh, but it is totally grounded in you and your perfect wisdom and your sovereign choice. Uh, God, you have known us uh, before, before we were born. You knew us. You loved us. You chose us. You preferred us, not because of anything in us, God, but because it was the good pleasure of your will to show grace. And so, Lord, help us stay humble. Lord, keep us from any arrogance on this doctrine or because of this doctrine. Lord, increase our boldness to share the gospel because we know all of your elect will be saved. Um, And we don't know when, 
uh, so we don't give up. But Lord, help us rest at night knowing that if we have faithfully presented the gospel and called people to respond, God, that it's not our fault if they don't believe. Um, And so, Lord, help us leave this place and hold these things dear to our hearts. God, that you have known us before the beginning of the world. You chose us. You loved us with an everlasting love. And I pray that we'd be overwhelmed and that our worship would be fueled in new ways because of that. Lord, please just continue to give us receptive hearts as we go into our main service. Lord, be with Scott as he preaches the word. Uh, Help us hear, receive, and respond in obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name.